the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. How are you doing today? Welcome to this Tuesday. I don't have my watch on today, Jarrell. What's today, the 7th? Yep. Is that right? I just guessed that. Very good. That sounds nothing like you, by the way. At any rate, Tuesday, August the 7th, Craig Roberts with you as we launch into a pretty jam-packed day. We're going to talk about a new decision handed down by the California Supreme Court. Hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it will, particularly if you're looking for work in the gig economy or perhaps you are an employer who likes to bring in part-time folks to work as outside contractors. It's easy. They come in, they work the job, they leave. Well, guess what? Um, California State Supreme Court has said, "Mm, that's sounding a lot like you're trying to avoid paying taxes here. So a new decision that's been handed down. We're going to talk with Marion McGovern about it. She's the author of a new book called Thriving in the Gig Economy, How to Capitalize and Compete in the New World of Work. That'll be coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Also, Brad Dacus is going to drop in, give us an update on the status of Assembly Bill 2943. California State Legislature came back to work. Well, be more accurate about this. They showed up in Sacramento again on Monday. How much work actually gets done? Eh, not so sure about that. At any rate, but they are, they are back and they are voting. And with all of that, uh, we're going to be talking about the status of 2943 and where exactly that stands and why you need to be aware. All right, let's see here. We're going to get down to cases, shall we? We have long been talking on this program, probably for the entirety of the show that's been on the air for 30 years. Some of you that have been listening to the show since 5 o'clock say it feels like that time passed in the last five minutes or so. (laughs) But over the course of the last three decades... We have been ever warning about the slippery slope of the culture of death that has not only accepted but embraced abortion on demand and seen the slow march toward legalized euthanasia, which now here in California, so-called physician-assisted suicide, is the order of the day. And we've long said, even with Controls. I'm doing my air quotes here. Even with controls, this can get out of hand so quickly that suddenly the most vulnerable in our society are at risk. And I'll be darned if we weren't handed some direct evidence of that in Belgium, where deliberately taking a child's life, I said a child, is legal. Find out more. Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, we've been talking about this topic. 
for many, many years and often said, as I suggested, that this there was no way that this was going to end well. It was just going to get worse for the most vulnerable and least defenseless in our society. And the the word out of Belgium and the Netherlands have been heading in the same direction as well. But the allowance of a child under the age of 12 to make up their own mind as to whether or not they wish to live or have their life terminated is shocking. Yes, Craig, we, we have talked about this a lot. And, you know, we, we always remind people that this is a very emotional debate. And that the arguments used to justify this, and I'll admit, they are emotional. If you listen to the language, and again, we talked, I was in Netherlands and the Bel- in Belgium when they first legalized assisted suicide years ago. It's the same argument you hear here, and that is the notion of hopeless, incurable. Now, hopeless, that's an emotional argument. And when you talk about dignity or suffering, these are very, very powerful emotional words, but they're also somewhat vague. And all of us know this about the idea of suicide. When someone is considering suicide, that's an emotional consideration. There may or may not be a physical illness present. Oftentimes there isn't even a physical illness present. But it clearly is emotional, and someone can have a physical illness, as we said. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross pointed that out in 1969, the five stages of grief. You're guaranteed if you have a physical situation that may at some point involve the ending of your life, you are going to have emotional turmoil. If we predicate our laws on emotion, it's extremely dangerous. As a matter of pain, I met Dr. Peter Admiral from the Netherlands. He is the leader of the pro-euthanasia group in the Netherlands. He is actually an anesthesiologist. And as such, he is trained in medicine. And believe it or not, he is very clear, and I agree with him on this, pain is never a reason to kill someone. He understands pain medication and pain management. Now, think about this. The Hippocratic Oath is 3,000 years old. And in the Hippocratic Oath, they swore they would not use medicine to kill people. And even if asked. Now, pain management, I have to tell you, has gotten better. It's gotten a whole lot better. So the idea that you invoke pain, and here's the real issue. When they invoke pain, what they're really appealing to is to your feelings about pain, and you'll hear that very often. Of course, here in, in the U.S., the typical argument is, if a person has another six months of suffering, come on, six months of suffering, we have to legalize this. They're within six months of death. Therefore, to end that six months of, of suffering, we, we, we should authorize, out of compassion, killing that person. But wait a second. If six months of suffering is a bad emotional situation, what about six years? What about 60 years? Why is it that people who are disabled, again, people that do have a disability, we all face challenges first, but if you have a disability, you've got incredible challenges. And you know what helps someone that's facing challenges? 
whether they're a suicidal person on the edge of a building, on the Golden Gate Bridge, or in some nursing home right now, is hope. And personal involvement in speaking to that person's soul and spirit about their emotions, that solves it. One of the children killed in Belgium, Greg, had basically, uh, I I believe it was a Lou Gehrig-type disease. Now, that is tragic. And I've heard it said, and you too, who would want to live like that? But, you know, Stephen Hawking does. Stephen Hawking has faced it. Stephen Hawking has been an extraordinary individual. He's not even a Christian. Stephen Hawking, though, saw, see, human beings are more than our physical appearance and more than our conditions. But we, as exterior people, look at someone and say, oh, that's terrible. I wouldn't want that condition. I wouldn't want to be diagnosed with that type of cancer. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't, my emotions, my feelings, my emotions. And that is what is compelling this argument. Again, if you have the leading euthanasia advocate who understands medicine say, this is never, pain is never a reason to kill someone. Now, what Peter Admiral really says, it's about quality of life. Only certain people, imperfect people. He is out to, and they're quite upfront about it. If someone is an imperfect person, they should and deserve to no longer be alive. And this quality of life argument is so acceptable now in modern culture. And it's why we've talked about it many times. Uh, it's why Iceland no longer has any Down syndrome kids. And they brag about it. Because, oh, well, that's an imperfect life. So they're happy to remove the imperfect. So this is a very powerful emotional argument, and it's actually aimed not at that other person's emotion. Sometimes it is. It's not hard, especially a young person that has a serious illness. But anybody with a serious illness, it's not hard to talk them into just getting it over with. It'll be easier. Because their emotions are very raw. Well, and you know the irony here too is that any any attempt, any any measurement that we try to do insofar as quality of life is really uh, terribly subjective. It is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if you said to me, for example, uh, well, Craig, if you lost your eyesight tomorrow, would that greatly impact the quality of life? Absolutely. Can you imagine yourself living sightless? No, I can't. Would you want to live sightless? And I think most sighted people would say, well, absolutely not. What, what kind of life is that? And yet say that to the likes of Helen Keller. You mentioned Stephen Hawking uh, living with the challenges that he faced for decades. How about Johnny Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic for life and yet having the most phenomenal ministry as a singer, a songwriter, author, artist, and the founder and head of one of the largest disabled persons ministries in the world. And yet some might say, well, what quality of life do you enjoy when you've been relegated to a wheelchair your entire life? How about the president that led us through not just the Depression, but World War II? who, frankly, was disabled from the waist down from the ravages of polio in his 30s and could not, practically speaking, even walk. Our first seriously 
uh, disabled president who saw us through some of the most difficult times in history. And yet some might, by the same yardstick, say, well, that's no quality of life. So these are all examples of where the subjectiveness of all of this leads us down an extremely dangerous and slippery slope. We're going to have to dive into this even deeper, uh, Brian, than time will allow today. And I'd love to get you back in to talk more about this, because as we see the slippery slope um, gaining momentum in countries like the Netherlands or now in Belgium, you have to wonder how soon before we begin to embrace more of this in our own nation and what it means to say to a 9- or 11-year-old that they are granted the autonomy to decide whether or not their life is terminated. And while, yes, they argue that, well, in the case of Belgium, a child has to make his or her wishes known in writing, and then child psychiatrists will conduct examinations, including intelligence tests, to determine that the youngster is capable and, quote, not influenced by a third party. And yet, lives are still being taken because it's convenient based on somebody else's very subjective opinion. Sad. Sad state of affairs, sad direction that our culture, our Western culture is headed in. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Thank you so much for that update. All right, we're here at 518, 519. Let's get caught up. Speaking of updates, take a look at traffic right now. Head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick, how are we doing out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you had planned vacation as we uh, head into Labor Day here fairly soon, if you'd planned any vacation trip to Yosemite National Park, be mindful you may need to uh, continue to put that off indefinitely. The two of the three main routes into Yosemite are still closed because of the Ferguson fire, reporting that highways 120 and 140 remain closed at the park boundary. The Yosemite Valley also remains closed indefinitely at this point. The largest fire in Sierra National Forest in history has now chewed more than 94,000 acres. Containment is up 43%. And meanwhile, the fire has killed at least two, injured 11 others, and destroyed 10 structures. So we need to uh, continue to be mindful of fire danger at the peak here, and will continue to be that way into October, and certainly be in prayer for not only folks that have lost uh, property and and uh, loved ones in this terrible fire, but also for the thousands of firefighters that are putting their lives at risk every day trying to put these fires out. Toward the end of the Supreme Court session here, late April, early May, the California Supreme Court before going on their um, summer recess, issued a ruling which significantly skews the previous criteria that have been used in California for classifying workers. You probably heard the term gig economy, and certainly in the San Francisco Bay Area with so much high tech here, it's not unusual for firms to hire people not based on a full-time position or a uh, you know full-time job, but rather based on projects or individual gigs, as some might refer to them. And, of course, with that, there's been some concerns voiced by the state of California that some employers may be using this not as a means of finding employees that come in, do a specific job, and leave so it's convenient to the business, but rather as a way to avoid paying things like uh, 
taxes, avoid paying things like um, health and welfare, things of this sort. And so with these changes now, uh, you should be warned, particularly as a business owner, that the new ruling could directly impact your bottom line. That said, though, does the California Supreme Court ruling discouraging the classification of workers as quote-unquote independent contractors necessarily mean the end of the gig economy? My next guest, I think, would argue absolutely not. She is Marion McGovern. Marion has a brand new book out called Thriving in the Gig Economy, How to Capitalize and Compete in the New World of Work. And Marion, great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. Great to be here. So much of this, of course, reflects the changing face of the working world. Let's face it, today with technology, we get a chance to work at home, we telecommute, we come in, we do a job. A lot of people, quite frankly, like the freedom that that gives them so they can set their own hours, come and go as they please, still get paid. And others, quite frankly, I think, enjoy the fact that they get a project to work on, they reach a sense of completion, and then they get a change of atmosphere. But California Supreme Court, as I suggested, said, nah, we don't think so. Seems here like some employers are simply trying to get around paying things like uh, uh, long-term care insurance and health insurance and things of this sort. What's your take on this ruling? Well, first, in the spiritual disclosure, I am not an employment attorney, but um, I did, uh, back in the day, start an employment compliance firm. So I have been deeply involved in this issue for um, quite a while. So the truth of the matter is it's really murky. Um, and as the, the various employment lawyers I've talked to have said, you kind of won't know until there's future litigation what happens here. So just to, to summarize it for your listeners, what the Supreme Court did was apply a new standard uh, called the ABC standard where um, there were three criteria to use to define whether uh, a worker is a, an employer or an independent contractor, the first being that the company would have no direction or control over the worker, the second being that the worker was doing work that was outside the core business of the company, and the third would be that the worker offered these services to, to the community at large. And this was a delivery company where they were delivery drivers and... Um, they said, mm, sorry. So this ABC standard is actually um, stronger than any, virtually every other state except, I think, well, I want to say Massachusetts, and certainly said uh, more so than the federal criteria. What's, what makes it really murky, however, is the fact that it was done for the purpose of determining whether the workers qualified um around wage orders, so in essence, whether they qualified for minimum wage. It did not have anything to do with whether or not they were employees for tax purposes. So that's where it won't be until there are other um, cases brought to the court of other situations where that becomes clarified. In fact, there have been some people, you know, law professors who write about this kind of stuff, um, arguing that maybe there is a hybrid standard where, where, yeah, you qualify for the minimum wage, but you don't have to have uh, Social Security taxes or you don't have to, you know, be have um, your income taxes taken out of your net pay, et cetera. So, I mean, that to me seems even more complicated. Um, so the truth of the matter is, 
it's uh, unclear right now. Um, just yesterday, a group of um, gig companies, nine companies, Uber, Lyft, uh, Instacart, DoorDash, Postmates, um, TaskRabbit, Handy, and TSS, which is actually a payment system company, sent um, a letter to the governor asking him to intercede on this, and uh, the state chamber of commerce is working behind the scenes too to see if they can, if something can be done to create some uh, safer middle ground. So, um, you know, we'll see. So but while clearly then we're, we're still waiting, as you suggest, Marion, for uh, some of the upper-ups to weigh in on this question, the IRS, Social Security Administration, maybe it makes its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Who's to say? And clearly there are some concerns here on the side of the equation related to making sure that employers are not taking advantage of workers by, you know, again, trying to skirt regulations that would allow for certain minimum levels of benefits, meet wage hour law or payment into Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, though, there's still a big demand for this from the viewpoint of employees, aren't there? I mean, it seems to me that, well, yes, there's a lot to be said for the 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, 40-hour-a-week traditional job. Aren't more and more people, particularly young workers, really turned on by the notion that they can kind of write their own tickets, set their own hours, come in, do a task, be done? Yes, and, you know, there are... uh First, there are distinctions between kind of the on-demand world, the delivery guys, the drivers, etc., where they're just kind of, they can decide to do it whenever they want to do it. For a lot of these people, this is supplemental income. So for a lot of these people, they have other jobs. I mean, I talk to every Uber driver I have, given my interest and fascination in this subject. And, you know, a lot of them are teachers, masseuses, uh, musicians, you name it. But uh, for many, they have other jobs from which they get traditional employment benefits. So this is supplemental income. Um, The other dimension of this, however, is there is also a whole other, I mean, depending on what study you read, um, there are 53 million people in America that are doing this, um, working on gigs. And for many, it is a career. It is a choice. And, and, you know, 70% decide to work this way. And these are people who are doing uh, career kind of professional level work of web development, digital marketing, uh, HR, financial stuff, you name it. And and quite frankly, there it was only last year that the millennials overcame the boomers as the largest cohort in this world of independent work. Um, and quite frankly, the boomers keep growing. So as more and more boomers retire, many of them decide, well, gee, I, I don't want to retire entirely. So they are still maintaining a, a fair amount of of traction in the marketplace in this world of independent work. And clearly, the gig economy is not for everybody. Some people like the sense of security that the the, the permanent nine-to-five job uh, tends to, to lend itself to, although even security with the changing face of uh, uh, the employment world today and things like automation and AI coming, uh, that, that's going to continue to be a moving target. But there are a lot of people that, that are attracted to this, and of course others that say, hey, you know, I learned that this is the way to get along. But what about you? Maybe you haven't quite figured out exactly what the gig economy is and how to capitalize on it, and most importantly, how to compete in it. 
We'll talk about that as our conversation with best-selling author Marion McGovern, a look at thriving in the gig economy, how to capitalize and compete in the new world of work as Lifeline continues. 534 on the clock. I'm sorry, 532. Let's get a look at traffic for you. The latest right now with Nick. Nick, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about how to thrive in the gig economy, how to capitalize and compete in the new world of work. Best-selling author Marion McGovern with us today. Marion, let's talk about some of the major differences. Um, certainly for baby boomers, this is very foreign. Uh, there's either work or not work. And if you're doing something part-time, that doesn't sound like real work. And yet... For more and more millennials, they're quite content with this system. They like the freedoms that it offers. So clearly it's not for everybody. But in terms of understanding how this is working and why it's gaining in popularity, give us a few insights. Actually, first, again, the baby boomers are a very large part of the gig economy. They are a full 38% of the independent worker community. Um, And they have been for a long time, quite frankly, a lot of the independent professionals started doing this back in the, the 90s, you know, when corporations had uh, done so many acquisitions that they started just downsizing. And um, a lot of people just got tired of being downsized again and again, and they hung out their own shingles. So there is a very large cohort of um, boomers. And, in fact, the boomers tend to get paid more because they have better skills, um, more senior skills. So that is a a frustration when you look at the demographics of the different groups. Um, The millennials like it, and interestingly, um, the millennials use the gig world to upskill themselves. And that's something, you know, as somebody that used to match uh, consultants to projects, which is how I got into this uh, human capital specialty, um, I found that really curious because, you know, why would someone hire you if you didn't know what you were doing? But the truth of the matter is, especially in technical fields, say you're a, uh, a Ruby programmer working somewhere and you want to get into the Python team because Python is a cooler um, development language, well, you go, you learn it, which, you know, my son's a developer, so I know they just do that. You learn it. You go on uh, Fiverr or Upwork. You do some Python gigs, and then all of a sudden you've got that background so you can maneuver your own career to get to, you know, join that Python team that you wanted to join. So really, there's there's a lot of, I, I guess, mentalities that go behind this. Some, as you suggest, particularly as we saw more and more outsourcing where baby boomers uh, kind of decided, you know what, this is this is the new gig, so I'm going to head in that direction, and it's a matter of, of survival. Others embracing it because they like the freedoms that it tends to allow, and that notion of being able to pick up a lot of job skills, and I suppose but what better way to pepper your resume with a lot of companies and a lot of experience doing a lot of things, but then working in the gig economy. That's absolutely right. And when you when you read anything about what people are talking about, you know, the future of work, what are the skills you need in the future? You need resilience and adaptability and a demonstrated ability to learn new things. You know, it used to be that you, you had all of this learning that you did in college and then you learned maybe at your first job and you rose in your career, um, but sort of the learning stopped a bit. Well, now it's more of a cycle where you have to be continuously learning. And I think that the... You know, for many, uh, the the gig world, the idea of 
projects that continually give you um, new skills is a big part of that. In fact, Upwork did a study recently with the Freelancers Union, which is an advocacy group for independent workers, and they looked at um, the comparison of regular employees and how much they were upskilling and independent workers and how much they were, you know, teaching themselves new, th- new, new things. And it was a 68-34 split with 68% of the freelancers were doing things to, to uh, improve their skill set. We're only, you know, in the, in the mid-30s were the employees. Uh, Marion, from your viewpoint, your understanding, does this tend to lend itself to um, certain job sectors more than others? I would imagine certainly, for example, here in Silicon Valley, that the digital talent platform is one that seems to be very uniquely or ideally suited to the gig economy. But but where else? Well, you know, there are lots of um, people really don't even appreciate how many digital talent platforms there are out of the, out there. There are the uh, kind of the big ones that many people have heard of, like Upwork and and um, and Fiverr and Catalant, which does consultants, um, Spearhire, which does financial people. But there's one, for example, called Expertify that all it is is data scientists. Um, there's one called um, LifeSciHub, where where all it is are people who are involved in clinical trials and drug development. So there are these niche platforms out there um, with great specialties. Now, in terms of where doesn't things work, as you pointed out, you know, there are people that need structure in jobs. I happen to be the the chairman of uh, CPP, the Myers-Briggs Company, which is a psychometric tool. And in our uh, thought leadership team in, um, in the U.K., they actually just did a study of psychological type and um, – and people who are independent workers, gig workers. And there was a, a huge number of people. Um, there was a great distinction between who did the, the psychological type of, of people who gravitated toward gig work, gig work versus people who didn't. And, and clearly the, the people who needed more sort of structure and detail and process were tended to, to work more as employees. In in terms of being able to kind of, and I would wonder for some people if it's a matter of kind of needing to put their toe in the water. In other words, if you've been in the working world for a long time and you have a sense of you think how this ought to go, people hear gig economy and suddenly there's a fear factor. Well, that means I don't have a permanent job, so I'm constantly going out looking for work, and I, I almost feel like a member of the United States Congress. I get elected, and, and even though the, the term is only for two years, it seems as if the minute I get into office, I'm already thinking about, well, how am I going to get reelected? Yep, is, yep. is there a big sense of that shared with people in the gig economy? And if so, how do you cope with that? And quite frankly, the biggest challenge that people have um, – is the idea of, of kind of income predictability. It's because if you're working really hard, it's hard to be selling that next job. I think the the very fact that there are more more options for them. You know, it used to be 25 years ago, there were firms like the one I started, which matched consultants to projects. But, you know, now there are, there are a host of them, and you have multiple options from where you can get work. Um, I do have this fear, though, in sort of the digital world that people just figure, 
all I have to do is register at these sites and, and you know, stuff will happen. Well, you know, you still have to be out there and, and meeting people and, and kind of talking to people that could use your, your services, uh, um, assuming you're sort of in the, in the professional ranks. Um, in a way, the very fact that there's this whole on-demand world, you know, it used to be if you were going to hang out your shingle and become an independent, you know, marketing person, um, you really had to, you didn't have a whole lot of choice of, of waiting for the, the revenue to come in. But now you could hang out your shingle as a marketing person, and if revenues are slow, you could drive for Uber for a while. So, like, there are, there are ways to get over those humps, but... You didn't have 20 years. And you certainly get to build a, a, a skill set that is perhaps um, bigger or broader than the average bear. I mean, for example, I've worked for the same company for 34 years. I wouldn't have a clue how to put together a resume. But somebody that is working in the gig economy, clearly marketing themselves is going to be a skill that they've got well-fine-tuned and networking, things of this sort. I imagine, though, in addition to developing some of their skills, it also requires that one know how to manage their time and manage their money pretty skillfully, too. Yeah, you know, I actually have, uh, you know, first you've got to figure out that you've got a skill that somebody can buy. That's pretty basic. And you've got to figure out, the, you know, based on what I could, what I think I might be able to charge, is that going to work for me? But then there's also the question of um, how do I feel about being alone? Because by definition, you're working independently. You know, maybe you're meeting with some clients and stuff, but you're pretty much it. You've got to be your own motivation. You've got to be the, you know, be the one who uh, gets gets yourself excited to make those phone calls or whatever it is. Um, and then three, you've got to be able to say no, which is different for people who have only been employees. You know, if your boss asks you to do, you're doing A, and he says, gee, I need today, I need you to do B, you do it. If you're a consultant, if your client says, gee, I know you're doing A, but I need you to do B, you have to say, sorry, no. You know, we contracted for A, so if you want me to do B, we need to renegotiate or maybe do a phase two because, you know, I need to do A. And and that's not normal for a lot of people who kind of are used to just listening to their boss. So you really almost, in that sense, become like your own corporation. You market yourself. You have to manage your time. You have to manage your resources. You have to manage your clients or the people that you work with and the people that you work for. Uh, and in a lot of ways, see yourself as the product and every aspect of many of the internal workings of, of a traditional corporation A to Z, the big difference is you're it. It's a fascinating look at how to thrive in the gig economy. Our guest today, its author, Marion McGovern. The book again, Thriving in the Gig Economy, How to Capitalize and Compete in the New World of Work, newly published by Career Press. You'll find it online at Marion McGovern's website, simply marionmcgovern.com. That's marionmcgovern.com or through many of the usual suspects, amazon.com, etc. All right, 5.50. Let's get caught up on traffic. Marion, we thank you. We also thank Nick, who's got a look at traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At the top of tonight's program, with tongue firmly planted in cheek, I made a reference to the California State Legislature being back to work. You have to do air quotes when you say that, because largely they do more in the arena of stirring up trouble than they do solid 
solving of California's problems up in Sacramento and, and some of the problems that they stir up, trouble that they stir up, essentially lies in putting their nose into areas where they have no business or no understanding. Witness, for example, Assembly Bill 2493. Faith communities have been alarmed by this bill because in many respects it would limit how they, as pastors and so forth, counsel congregants to live consistently with their faith and teachings of their church. And, of course, uh, there has even been um, some uh, decisions handed down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that raises some questions of reasoning in relationship to what is seen by many as a fundamental First Amendment right. Let's get an update on the status of AB 2943. We're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, I know that we talked about it at the time. Um, You had weighed in on an earlier, not altogether dissimilar bill, Senate Bill 1172, uh, that saw a number of years being tied up in the courts until ultimately uh, it disappeared. And lo and behold, leave it to the California State Legislature to find something to replace it with. Tell us the current status of this bill. I understand that uh, it, with some modification, may go back to either the Assembly for another vote related to amendments or go back to the governor for his signature. Where do things stand right now on AB 2943? Yeah, that's a good question, Craig. Uh, right now, it stands that it's uh, in the, the process of being considered by the Senate and the uh, state Senate uh, will, you know, they've uh, tentatively amended it, and if they adopt the amended version, which uh, reportedly gets rid of the uh, banning of books, uh, but it still bans uh, free speech and counseling and all those kinds uh, of different forms of speech expression, uh, ministering, etc., uh, that uh, it'll then go over to back over to the state assembly, where the state assembly will uh, in fact, uh, hear it and um, and then uh, go for and then uh, if the state assembly then passes it, which we think they would, the amended version, then it would go to the governor for his approval. All right, and you know, again, as you and I have discussed, there's many aspects of this bill, not unlike its predecessor, that is so blatantly contrarian to fundamental First Amendment rights. And and, and while we say, well, uh, the good news is the state Supreme Court will jump in or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but, you know, sometimes their rulings handed down can be a little bit dubious as well. So in terms of the best approach to address something like this, other than replacing all of the California state legislature, which gets my hearty endorsement, uh, it it sounds like really letting them feel feel the heat uh, up to the governor's office is going to be, what, the best way to approach this, short of a full-on, long-term, expensive legal battle? You're absolutely right. Uh, and it's going to cost California taxpayers quite a bit because, it, uh, you know, if we have to do the legal battle, uh, you know, inevitably we're very confident that we at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, we're, we're planning on filing a lawsuit if it becomes law, we're confident that the Supreme Court uh, will uh, will have the votes to... Uh, strike it down as unconstitutional. You know, Craig, they just recently uh, made a, a real clear statement in the uh, pro-life pregnancy center case that came down uh, just not just recently, 
and they said that professional speech uh, is still protected speech. And that precedent, which, which they established just recently this summer, uh, would apply to this legislation, we believe very clearly, would apply to counselors, licensed and unlicensed, and the rights of people to seek the counseling from those counselors that they wish. Well, and even more so when it takes place in a religious atmosphere. I mean, I, you know, I think we've long understood uh, and long been held by uh, experts on the topic that while we might not always agree with the speech, um, our founding fathers were very deliberate in protecting speech. Now, yes, certainly there are reasonable limits to that. You can't run around yelling fire in a crowded theater, as the saying goes, and uh, call that freedom speech. But at the same token, uh, to, to, be, to be entering into uh, either the confines of the counseling arena or in the religious arena, in churches and whatnot, and, and to suggest that you're going to somehow suddenly begin to control speech uh, seems to show a tremendous degree of ignorance of not just the the First Amendment at face value, but the historical background and, and intent of the founding fathers when that was placed into the the document into the the um, Constitution in the first place. Oh, exactly. And when you have the Supreme Court just so recently, uh, so uh, with such clear articulation making it very clear that, you know, even professional speech where you have a licensing of, of that occupation or that profession, uh, there's still uh, protected speech under the, the uh, free speech clause of the First Amendment. When we, when we look at that, and to see a legislature seemingly just totally ignoring it at the expense of California taxpayers um, who are going to have to end up paying for their uh, flippant disregard for the established case law. So it, it's a real um, disservice to the people of California. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Californians need to let their legislators know uh, don't support legislation that is obviously going to be struck down as unconstitutional. Yeah. And, you know, how about busying yourself in areas that uh, the, the state desperately needs a little bit of your attention? Like, I don't know, let's let's get to work on fixing the potholes in our state and dealing with uh, the fact that we're, you know, always running a deficit. I mean, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on and on, and yet they seem to find ways to hunt out problems where there are none so that they can go in and intentionally create some so they <laughs> can come back and have an excuse to solve them. Unbelievable. All right, that's the latest. Letting your voice heard, be heard in Sacramento, AB 2943. You can contact uh, your member of the California State Legislature. Just go online if you Google who is my state senator, who is my assembly representative based on your zip code. Get that information, contact them. You can either call, you can email, you can stay in mail. If you're so inclined, do all three and let your voice be heard. The governor included in that list. All right, thank you for the update. There is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. More information online at pji.org. That's pji.org. He's a constitutional liar. I know a few attorneys that are liars versus lawyers. Any rate, to be continued in another date, another time, far, far, far later. Let's get a look at traffic right now. That's up close right now, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. With Nick. Nick, what's going on? 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.